passage in Revelation sounds a little bit different than Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is very earthbound, but still talks about the fear of God, reverencing God, so we'll be on that subject today. So if you don't want to reverence God, it would be a good day to not be here. Nobody's getting up to leave, so good. You're all here for that purpose. Wonderful. And besides that, I know something about you. What I know about you is that you have a built-in desire for awe. You'd love to be awed. That is, you have things you pursue because they captivate your heart. They appeal to you just very naturally. You don't have to work at it. It's easy for it to grab your heart. You enjoy doing them. You naturally get caught up in them. They satisfy desires in your heart unlike anything else. You can't get enough of them. You'll sacrifice time and resources to do them. You might be hiking and viewing the beautiful scenery of the gorge and the Cascades. Or it might be great movies, even marvelous movies. Or theater. It might be delicious food at some of the finest restaurants, Taco Bell, others. Christians for that. It might be going to see your favorite sports team play or lose. It might be music, going to great symphonies or concerts or Harvest Community Church worship team. You might be an adrenaline junkie and love high-risk sports or activities. Cure, looking at you. You might think there's nothing better than reading a good book. Yeah. You might love art or traveling to historic or exotic places around the world or watching it on some cable news channel. Or you might just love more than anything being with family and friends, more than anything else. You just love being with people you love. Or you love the beach and you're in awe of the beach. Or you love remodeling homes, or fixing up old cars, or fishing. Obviously, I, I keep this list going. The reason you find awe in these things is that God made you with a built-in awe, seeking heart. The way he designed us was to have him as our highest and most central awe, if I could put it that way. And everything else that created awe, things that we revere or are really impressed by or really love, get caught up in, were to point us back to him as what we should be most in awe of above everything else. So other things are good, but they're to point us back to the awe that we have to have in God as the central, most important reality in our lives. Because humans, that's all of us, fell, our awe-seeking nature is warped. We seek to have things we should be in awe of God for in created things. We replace the awe of or reverence for God with awe of other things in this world. And because we weren't designed to work that way, our lives are characterized by vanity. You might remember the Hebrew word there? Hevel, great. You've been listening. So hevel means it's translated vanity, futility in various translations. So the question we have is, how might our broken, awe-seeking nature, our awe-seeking DNA be repaired to work as it should work? 
That's what the author, we'll call him the preacher, could be Solomon, the Solomon-like guy anyway, is telling us today in this first seven verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We need our hearts restored to worshiping God with reverence and awe. So our truth, we have that up here on the screen, truth today is when you meet with God, worship him with reverence. Or you could put the word awe there. We may not have high reverence for the word reverence. We don't use it very often, so could probably should put awe there because that's something we're more common. We also have run that word to the ground. Everything's awesome. If, if everything's awesome, nothing's awesome. But God, he is awesome whether we use that word or not. So the, there's four points to see in this passage. The first one is worship God by coming to him to listen, not by offering foolish sacrifices. And that's verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to listen to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they're doing evil. So in the days Ecclesiastes was written, going to the house of God meant going to the temple. Since Christ has come, he fulfilled the purpose for the temple, and now he has made his people, the church, to be his household, his temple, his dwelling place. So now in Jesus, we are God's temple. It's not a building in one place. It's You see this in Ephesians 2 verses 19 to 22. We worship him as his house, his temple, not by going necessarily to a building to do it. No longer through priests and sacrifices, but through Jesus Christ. That's how we worship God now, in terms of temple worship, we use that. So what this verse tells us what the main purpose of our meeting together as God's house is, it is to hear from God. And in the time Ecclesiastes was written, the author wasn't saying that, that when you go to his house, you would hear from God directly. Sometimes God in history does speak directly to his people, but most time he speaks through his written word. So in those days, the priest would teach the people from the law, the written word of God. So today, when we gather as his church, we come to hear God speak through his word, his read and preached word. So why does the preacher, the author, exhort us to guard our steps when we go to God's house? Because we're to draw near to listen rather than to offer foolish sacrifices, he says. The sacrifice of a fool is when it's thoughtless. It's not offered by faith in his word. It's not offered in obedience to him according to his way of redemption. When this book was written, they had to offer perfect sacrifices to the priest. And they weren't to bring their, their damaged animals. They were to bring their perfect animals for sacrifices. So in the day of prophet Malachi, for example, people were going through the motions in their worship. They complained they weren't getting anything out of worshiping God. It's boring, it's useless, bah. And God said, you are cursed for having the right kind of sacrifice to offer, but you bring your, your damaged ones to me. So they weren't worshiping God. Truly, they were worshiping him in foolish ways. Because God said, I'm a great king, and my name will be feared above the nations. In Saul's day, King Saul, the first king of Israel, God had instructed him to wipe out all the Amalekites had. The Amalekites were bad guys. They had really messed with Israel and abused them when they came out of Egypt. So God said, first thing you need to do, Saul, is go wipe out the Amalekites and all they have. And so what Saul did, he spared the best sheep, the best oxen, all the best of the sacrifices. Samuel, the prophet, confronted him and said, why, why did you disobey the God? And he said, no, I did obey God. I just kept the best stuff to sacrifice for me. Isn't that going to cover for it? And Samuel said, now here's, I think I do have this scripture on the screen, 1 Samuel 15, 22. 
Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now, how might we do that today? We don't bring sheep. Nobody brought their best oxen today, defective or otherwise, or rams or lambs. So how do we do that today? Well, so now we can presume to worship God, certainly thoughtlessly or recklessly as they did, and you're not very thoughtful about what you're doing. And uh, so that can be foolish. For offering God what's defective, the Old Testament requirement of offering animals that were unblemished was pointing toward the ultimate sacrifice, the spotless name of God, Jesus Christ. So if you presume to worship God apart from being in Christ, that is foolish worship. You see this in, in the book of Hebrews. It talks about Christ offering himself without blemish to God. The blood of Christ offered himself through the eternal spirit without blemish to God. And so Jesus fills that need we have to have be counted spotless and sinless in God's sight because he alone was the only person to ever be that. And so we need him as our way to worship God without being foolish and useless and vain and hevel. Jesus is both our perfect sacrifice offering and the one who reveals God to us because he perfectly obeyed God and because he was God and is God, he was qualified to die in our place so that in him we are accepted. If we assume God is needy and he just needs anything we'll give him, any attention he'll get, he's like a needy attention getting God. Oh, oh, I, I'm so needy. I need these people to say something nice to me. If they'll just even look at me or, or you know, wink at me or do something, I'll, I'll be happy. If we think that way, that's foolish worship. So if you're going to listen to God when you come to church to worship him, which is what we're supposed to do, listening to, to what, how he says we are to offer him acceptable worship, not just assuming that any old attention we give to God is acceptable, then we need to, we have a responsibility as church, anybody who's up here teaching, to present to you the Christ-centered word of God. Because the whole center of theme of scripture is about Jesus. And we need to teach you that word and make sure we teach it in a way that was meant to be understood, which is Jesus Christ-centered word. You don't want my opinions on social or political issues, or you don't want me to ma manipulate you through emotional stories, or you might want that, but... Not to manipulate you, but because there are, God does care about our emotions, but we're not just to be up here to ma manipulate you into feeling things or to do therapy up here. Our duty is to declare what God says in his revealed word, especially the central message of the word, which is Christ and him crucified and resurrected and coming again for us. It's all about him. This verse also tells us why anyone should come to worship God with his church. The main reason above all is that you should come to hear from God, to listen to him. There are other legitimate reasons to come besides just hearing the word of God taught. For sure, you come here to encourage others, to grow together, to serve one another, to worship God with praise, prayer, sharing the Lord's table like we, we will do and are doing this morning. But what gives us the right perspective on all these things and shapes our hearts to love them and not just go through the motions with them is God's word. So we need to listen to God in order to know how to think rightly about how he wants us to worship him. And besides, listening to God's word is not a passive activity. In fact, the word itself here, meaning listen, can also be translated obey. Same in, in the first Samuel 15 passage we had up there. To obey is better than sacrifice. could also be translated to listen. So God wants us to obediently listen to him or listen with obedient hearts. 
Don't just let it hear, pass through your brain and not get to the heart and not translate into obedience. Better to come to God to listen obediently to his word than to put a big donation in the offering. However, if you can do both, that's great. <laughs> but if you have to choose, listen obediently to his word. Now, we have so many choices of what to listen to today, don't we? Many choices. Podcasts, endless 24-7 news cycles, sports, entertainment, teaching, music. How can listening to God through a human preacher compete and cut through the nonstop noise? How do we come ready to listen? Well, what motivates you to listen to anybody? They have something that you want to hear. So if you want to know God, you have to listen to him because only God can reveal God. He does it through his word. So if you want to know God, you'll want to listen to him. What often reduces our, reduces our desire to listen to him is we don't realize how alienated we are from him. So we need to hear a good word from him. How do I bridge that alienation that I have with God? If we don't know that we're alienated from him, we don't think it's a big deal. Oh, yeah, God, hmm, yeah, I'll check in any time. No, we can only come to him through Christ. And so we don't realize how holy he is and how unholy we are. In fact, a reason we are foolish in how we approach God, we don't have, naturally have reverence for God. We're not in awe of his goodness or his wisdom or his greatness. We just don't think that much of him. So it's easy for us to just ignore God. We're not coming expecting, I so desperately need to hear from God today. I can't keep going unless I hear from God. Those of us who teach you God's word have a great responsibility to be sure we don't distort his word. We don't dilute it or downplay it or downgrade it or rub off the sharp edges or dull sharp edges. We must not dress it up or dumb it down to make it more appealing. We also want to be sure that what we sing about God is true and what we pray to him is in keeping with who he is. Which leads to what the preacher says next in the next couple of verses, verses 5, 2 to 3. The next point, worship God not with many words, but by recognizing he is holy and you're not. So you see the verses there, don't be rash with your mouth, don't let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for you, God is in heaven, you are on earth. So when words are many, transgressions not lacking, says the Proverbs, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Or the great theologian Lisa Simpson, I think I have this on the screen, she said, what you see up there, better to remain silent, silent be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Thank you, Lisa Simpson. Now, when he says God is in heaven and you are on earth, he means there's a huge distance between us and God. The big word there is transcendence. God is transcendent. It means he's higher than we are, beyond our comprehension. He's infinite. It doesn't mean he's not near to us in other ways. It's a statement not of his, how, where he is so much, but of his nature, how much greater he is than we are. He's infinite. He's self-existent. There's no one or nothing like him. He's holy. And really, that's the main meaning of the word holy. It doesn't just mean his moral perfection. He is morally perfect. That's true. But the word itself means he is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, other than us. He is wholly different. He is entirely higher than we are in everything about him. So you want to listen to him, not just to what people have to say. He's infinitely higher than we are in every way. In the presence of something or someone that's great and awesome, we're more likely to stand in awe with our mouths hanging open than to be running off at the mouth. Our mouths will not be full of foolish and trivial words. So Job, after the first two chapters, 
that go on for 35 chapters with him arguing with his friends as to why he should get a hearing with God, why, why they think, why is this, all these bad things happening to Job? Why did God make these things happen or allow these things to happen to Job? And Job is so sure, if I could just talk to God, I could, I could convince him as to why this is not fair and it shouldn't, I don't deserve all this. 35 chapters he goes on, and then chapter 38, God intervenes and God breaks in. And he says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now God's doing the talking, challenging Job about all of his misconceptions with questions that show God's unimaginable greatness, showing Job's smallness. Before God broke in, Job was full of words and was so sure he had much to say to God. He wanted to argue with God as to why he didn't deserve all the bad things that happened. But after listening to God, he realizes that he spoke what he didn't know and that God is greater than he ever imagined. And can do whatever he pleases. And so Job says, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, I'm small. You're great. I'll shut up now and listen. God, you're way too great. I'll say no more. You're in heaven. I'm on earth. Also, ways to be speaking things that are not really honoring God. Heartless and mindless mouthing of songs or creeds are worthless worship. We dishonor God because we're not speaking out of what we believe in our hearts is true. It's as if we can say, just say the words without meaning them as if that pleases God. Just saying the words, like he's, he's just a robot who wants us to insert the right words. It's, it's like speaking words you think your spouse wants to hear when your heart is not engaged with them at all. Anybody ever done that? You're good. Wow. Check with your wives later. See. It's treating them as less than a real person, showing how little you think of them. Not honoring your spouses when you love and value if you just say mindless words that you think they want to hear, but you don't mean it. This people worships me with their hearts, with their lips, says God, but their hearts are far from me. Whenever my wife Patty speaks, I'm in awe and stunned silence because of her beauty and because of my great love for her. And I listen with rapt attention. My words are few. Because I can't get a word in edgewise. <laughs> I don't think she's in here. I don't think she heard it, so I can get away with it. Oh, she did. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Jesus taught we should not heap up many words in praying to God, not only because he is great, because he's a good father, who knows what we need before we ask? Jesus said this. When you pray to God, don't be like the Gentiles that think they'll heard, heap up empty phrases that they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. He never spoke rashly. Jesus never did. He never regretted saying anything he said. Can you imagine that? Never, ever regretted anything. Oh, I should have that. Take that back. Oh, I was too hard with Peter. Oh, I was too soft with John. He never had to do that. He never spoke useless words that weren't from his heart and didn't honor the greatness and goodness of God as Father. People hung on every word because every word he spoke was true and had substance. No throwaway lines. Jesus' brother James in his first, in his letter said, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak. And of course, we often flip-flop that. We're quick to speak and slow to listen. So what does he mean when he says dreams come through much business. 
He's talking about not being rash or hasty in bringing up matters to God. If you come to worship God, preoccupied with your worldly business and cares, whether your work or your social involvements or your hobbies or sports or what you did last night or your shopping list or what you're going to do after church service or your sports teams or movies, you may be too preoccupied to listen to God. So your dreams in this passage are your vain thoughts, temporal or temporary concerns, fleeting fixations of your mind. And they may not be about bad things, but they just disrupt your focus on God. You need to clear the deck so you can worship God truly from the heart and not be thinking of other things and just mouthing things or going through the motions of listening or being there. That's why both in this verse and verse 7, he mentions dreams and many words together. <clears throat> Whatever fills our hearts spills out our mouths. If our thoughts and imaginations are not filled with God's word, we are filled with other concerns. When we come to worship God, we are more likely to speak foolish words rather than the words that honor God. If our hearts are not filled with God's word, we are filled with other concerns. When we come to worship God, we are more likely to speak foolish words rather than words that honor him. Many things we are preoccupied with are words of vanity, hevel, futility. They may be legitimate, but in order for us to keep God at the center of our lives, we need to have times when we clear our hearts of these concerns so we might rightly worship God with reverence and awe. It's like my Kindle fire. If I don't shut it down every once in a while, it gets all bogged down. It doesn't work the way it was designed to. It just quits running. It'll just go really slow and chug along. I can't even open a book. So we need to do that with ourselves. We need to clear our minds, clear our hearts every once in a while from all the clutter to refocus and renew them on the awe and beauty and majesty of God. Otherwise, we don't work as God designed us to. He gives a specific answer example of how we can utter foolish words in the next section, verses 4 to 6. So we worship God by doing what you said to him, you will do vows, in other words. <clears throat> and this is where he says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Better that you should vow, not vow, than you should vow and not pay. He gets this from Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23. I'm not going to read that, but virtually he quotes that, so he's getting it from the writings of Moses. <clears throat> In the Old Testament times, people would make vows to God, often in terms like, God, if you'll save me, if you'll bless me, I'll do this for you. I'll bring the sacrifice. I'll, I'll honor you in some way. So like, for example, Hannah, she was childless. She prayed to God and vowed a vow and said, Oh, Lord, if you will indeed remember me and look upon me and, and don't forget about me, but will give your, to your servant a son, then I'll give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Not that he would be a rock star, but he would be what they called a Nazarite, someone who's devoted to God. They wouldn't shave or cut their hair except when God appointed them to. So the Lord answered, and Samuel was born, and when he was weaned, she fulfilled her vow and sent him up to hang out with the high priest Eli, and Samuel grew up to be a great prophet, not because of Eli, but because he was especially called by God, and I think because of Hannah's prayers. In the early days of the church, Ananias and Sapphira vowed to donate the proceeds of a sale of some property, which was good, but what they did was they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. That could have been okay if they would have just said that's what they did, but they, they said they gave the whole amount, and so they lied, saying that what they donated was the whole amount. For lying to God, they both died. God just took their life away as an Reminder, don't lie to God. Do what you say you're going to do or do what you said you have done. 
So how might we do that today? We don't ask you to take vows when you come in here, per se. So how, how might that we run into this today in the context of corporate worship? <clears throat> well, when we hear God's word and we think to ourselves, God, I'm going to change. I'm going to do that. I want to stop doing this and I'm going to do that. Would you help me do this? We walk out of, the, of here and we forget all about it. That's kind of like a vow because you've said, you've said to God in your heart or verbally, I want to do this for you, God. And if we don't do it, that's not good. So that's kind of like what he's talking about here, I think. We need to have hearts to listen obediently to his word with awe and reverence since they're the words of the living God. So if we respond to his word we, and we don't obey, that can be like breaking this same issue here. Sadly, I've done this way too often. Many of us are educated way beyond the level of our, of our obedience. We've taken so much information and not been transformed. We take in information without transformation. We need to cry out to God. We've trained our hearts to do this. We need to cry out to God to forgive us and cleanse us from this jaded way of taking, jaded way of taking in his word. We need to have hearts that listen obediently to his word. Your baptism is a public declaration that you're trusting in Jesus through his death and resurrection to save you from sin and give you eternal life. So your baptism isn't saying what you're going to do, per se. It's not, you don't, don't save yourself. God saves you. But because he has died, he sent a son to die for you and rescue you and make us your own, your, your baptism is also a declaration, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be his disciple. I'm going to be loyal to him. So that's also a, a vow. And if you turn back on that, you're breaking what you declare before people you're, you're going to do because of what Christ did for you. And then the sixth verse don't, don't let your mouth lead you to sin. Do not say before the messenger it was a mistake. So in those days, the priest would be the messenger in the temple, and you, when you went there, you could say, oh, you know that vow I made a while back? Well, I don't know what I was thinking. My wife nixed it or something like that. It was a mistake. What was I thinking? Oops. But this reflects a low view of God who will bring discipline into your life for making careless vows before him. So we think more of lying to human judges than to God. If you unfortunately have been tuned into the news past weeks, you may have heard terms like this. Obstructing justice. Lying to the court. Lying to the court, trying to cover it up with excuses can get you in more trouble than the crime itself. So don't lie to God in terms of what you're going to do. In a culture that has lost nearly all fear or awe of God, if we speak of God in terms like preacher does here, people will say, that's hateful, because they don't have any view of God that he's anything other than a Santa Claus. God's mercies are great. He is long-suffering and gracious, but he is holy and will bring painful, sometimes painful and severe consequences on those who treat him lightly and carelessly. So this brings us to verse 7. Worship God with reverence, since many dreams bring futility, and so do many words. <clears throat> As I said earlier, dreams are the worldly cares and concerns that our minds get preoccupied with or fixated upon, which the preacher says in this verse are hevel, vanity, or futility. They're vanity or futility because they often involve many words. The preacher says rather than being full of dreams and many words, we must fear God, be in awe of him. We need to worship God with reverence in order to not live lives of vanity and futility. This is because God designed us to live in all of him, to have reverence for him in all of life. If we don't, we'll seek other things to fill that longing. 
a built-in desire for all, reverence for ultimate satisfaction. Only God is able to fill that desire in a way that truly satisfies and frees us from living lives of vanity and futility. One of the reasons that we have a hard time reverencing God or, or being in awe of him is because in our fallen state, we want to be God or we want to set the terms. We think we deserve to be made much of and we think we will find happiness and satisfaction if God will just make much of us. We think if God loved us, he would make life work our way. He would fulfill our dreams and our desires. I love how John Piper answers this all too common way we think. Do you feel loved by God because, he, because you believe he makes much of you or because you believe he frees you and empowers you to enjoy making much of him? Do you feel loved by God because you believe he makes much of you in our self-esteem saturated culture or because you believe he frees you and empowers you to enjoy making much of him? If we value our words and dreams above being in awe of God, above fearing and reverencing him above all other concerns, our lives be characterized by vanity and futility. But thanks be to God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the only one on earth who deserved to be made much of, whose words and concerns were always pleasing to God because he was willing to die, as if he was the one who lived the way we have lived, as if he had not lived in awe and of and reverence for God, as if he lived for his own self-serving dreams and desires. He has freed us and empowered us to enjoy making much of him. So, therefore, we have gotten so much from God to be grateful for. He's given us a kingdom that we'll live in forever with him. Not what we deserve, but a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Hebrews 12 says this, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So to celebrate this truth that Jesus Christ is the one we're accepted through, even though we didn't deserve it, and because his worship, perfect honoring of God, is now accounted for our imperfect honoring of God, then we're going to take the Lord's table together after this. You're free to come up and, and take the cup and bread. If you're believing in Jesus Christ has saved you, if you're trusting in his death and resurrection, his life, for your life, if you've trusted in him, this meal is a continued celebrating of that truth and reminding of ourselves that we need to daily feed on Jesus and in order to have keep our hearts revering God, focused on him. If you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus that way, so just don't take this meal because this is a meal for those who have made their trust commitment into Jesus Christ. So we'll do that. We'll have a couple songs. Also, during this whole time, you can pray. We have people here to pray for you. And Dan, I know you're, you're one, right? You're gonna, and I had Alyssa and Kathleen, but I don't see Alyssa or Kathleen. So anybody else besides Dan going to pray with folks today? Or Dan going to have to carry the whole load? All right. Well, stand in line after Dan. Anytime during this time up until the end of the service, in the service, Dan will be up here. You can pray with him. And then also, after we've all taken the, the Lord's table together, after a couple songs, we're going to have a time where you can share scripture. So be thinking about what scripture might you want to share, especially if, you, if it's something that reflects on the greatness of God. You can share any scripture you want. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to give commentary on it. Just read it. Or if you have it memorized, share it. But we'll be doing that later on today. So three things, Lord's table, prayer, and in a couple 
songs, we'll have a time for you to share scripture. So I'll pray, and then we'll finish. I'll finish. We'll continue on. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you that even though we fall way short of your glory, you, Father, have rescued us from your judgment and made us to be acceptable in your sight through your son, Jesus Christ, the perfect worshiper, the perfect servant, one who, above all things, loved you and was, showed us how to revere you and make much of you. We thank you, Father, that though we have so often been consumed by our own dreams and desires and not appropriately honored you in worship, you continue, for those of us who are in Christ, to cleanse us by his blood and to make our hearts new, to reboot them. We do ask, Father, today that we would not leave here without having cleared our hearts and being able to hear from you. So thank you that you're doing that in us by your grace, not because of us, who we are, but because of who you are. Because you are so great, Father, we worship you, we honor you above all things. Thank you that you've stooped down to us through Christ and sent him as your servant, our servant, to rescue us from sin and make us your true worshipers and giving us a kingdom that will live forever and that cannot be shaken. It's in whose name we pray, amen.